Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield account. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI numbers reinforcing concerns about inflation. The financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to the markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon Samzell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. China slows, the Fed worries, and former President Trump strikes back. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard on where the housing market is headed. I do think we're looking towards softness in the future with uh, respect to housing. And Sonia Gibbs of the Institute of International Finance on the risk and the opportunity of zombie companies money that's being spent to keep zombie companies afloat is money that could be more productively deployed elsewhere. It was a week of signals, some subtle and some not. China sent an unmistakable signal that its economy is slowing, something that a 10 basis point rate cut doesn't seem likely to fix. President Xi is confronting a number of both, you know, short-term and long-term challenges. Right now, probably the number one thing is the poor performance of the economy. 
While former President Trump kept up his attack on Republicans who supported his impeachment, though Congresswoman Liz Cheney of Wyoming said she wouldn't stop even after she was soundly beaten in her primary. I have said since January 6th that I will do whatever it takes to ensure Donald Trump is never again anywhere near the Oval Office, and I mean it. And there was nothing subtle about the inflation signal we got out of Great Britain coming in over 10% and apparently headed even higher. I'd go to the UK where you're seeing an explosive move higher in UK guilt yields, Tom, and I don't think I'm overdoing it using that language. But the Fed, well, the Fed was a little less clear in the minutes from its July meeting, with a nuanced balancing of the concern over tightening too much and concern over inflation expectations becoming entrenched. Reading the minutes, you have to feel that uh, this is a sort of a dovish lean, and it supports Chairman Jay Powell's tone at the news conference following the June 27th meeting. Fed officials noted that some parts of the economy, notably housing, were starting to slow as a result of higher interest rates. And if you wanted confirmation of just how ambiguous those Fed minutes were, just take a look at the markets this week, with the S&P 500 shooting up on Tuesday, only to fall back down to earth and beyond on Friday, ending the week down 1.2% at 42.28. And the Nasdaq was even worse, again, climbing nicely early in the week, only to plunge on Friday, ending up down 2.6%, helped no doubt by concern about bonds, with the yield on the 10-year rising 14 basis points for the week and ending up just under 3 at 2.97. To help us understand what the markets may be trying to tell us, welcome now Bob Prince. He's co-chief investment officer for Bridgewater Associates and Ed Hyman, chair of Evercore ISI and vice chair of Evercore Partners. So welcome both of you back to Wall Street. It's really a pleasure to have you. Ed, let me start with you. You follow the economy and what's going on with the economy. We've talked about the markets. We've talked about the Fed. What's the economy telling us? Well, the economy has two parts to it, obviously. One part is what uh, real GDP is or auto sales. Then there's inflation. And inflation is by far the more important part right now. But on the first part, uh, the economy is doing okay. Uh, as you know, we survey companies. And our retail survey dropped sharply this week, but still pretty elevated. Housing is really getting hit. But on balance, the economy is doing okay. I think it's probably growing 2 or 3%, but headed to 1%. Uh, the rig count, I'm sorry, bank, bank loans came out this afternoon, and they're up 11% now. Uh, and retail sales this week uh, were you know, pretty decent. On inflation, which is much more important, uh, I, I'm pretty convinced that inflation is slowing. Uh, you, uh, oil prices came down, gasoline prices came down. And in the weeds, uh, used car prices dropped about 3% in the latest month. And we survey uh, retailers' pricing power. That's now plunging. You've heard the stories about the inventories being high. And we have been tracking that for a long time. It's now really coming down. Uh, but the most important part, and we don't get much data on this, are wages. And obviously, the labor markets are very tight. Uh, but they had, from the conference board this week, a measure of uh, CEO confidence was almost a record low. And then another survey uh, uh, that showed 80% of uh, workers uh, were concerned about losing their job. <laughs> go, go figure that. Uh, but we survey employment agencies every week uh, and ask them, among other things, about wage pressure. And that's now pretty clearly hooked down. 
So I think you're beginning to see some moderation in wages on top of you know, prices now cooling and the economy's cooling. So Bob, Ed sees inflation starting to come down. The uh, question is how fast it's coming down, but starting to come down. How do you see it? And is it coming down enough and fast enough so the Fed will not have to go much further in rate hikes? It's definitely <clears throat> on the down, but the question is where does it settle out? And, um, and does it settle out at the level that the Fed expects it to and that the markets are discounting? The markets are discounting two and a half. And you know, we're coming down from six. So, or higher on the core, right? So, but there are really two big um, imbalances in the economy right now that are, need to be resolved through this tightening cycle. And we're, we're still in this tightening cycle. Um, it's, it's too early to really see the effects. It hasn't been that long to see the effects. And so chances are you're gonna get more of that weakness as you, as you go along. Bob Prince and Ed Kyman will be back with us for more Wall Street Week after the break. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. 
I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. New construction contracts faltered, and while unemployment actually went down, more significant was back-to-back monthly declines in paying jobs. The bottom line seemed to be that the economy was beginning to move forward, but with many a lagging part, and overall at a pace that would embarrass a tortoise. That was Louis Ruckheiser on Wall Street Week back in August of 1991 when the United States had just come off of a relatively mild and short recession. The number one song, if you remember, was Brian Adams' Everything I Do, I Do It For You. And the top movie was Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Still with us are Bob Prince of Bridgewater and Ed Hyman of Evercore. So it's a bit of a different world today, Bob. For example, on the job situation, we still have a pretty robust jobs economy. But from everything we discussed before about the uncertainty of where we are on the tightening cycle, what comes next, What does that say to an investor? Well, right now, we're in an in-between stage right now, right? So if you you go back just not too many months ago, it it became evident that we had a self-sustaining inflation, that there was going to be a tightening monetary policy. The markets priced that in. Yields went up. Uh, You got the tightening of policy. It's still happening. It's not over. Uh, Markets got a little bit excited about the dip in some of the inflation. They started to bite on that yield. But that we've already given up half of the yield rise that occurred, and that actually means the Fed needs to do more than if the yields had stayed up where they were, right? Including equity. So, so we're still in this thing. We're still in this tightening cycle. And like I said, there, there are really, there's going to be a mixture of three things. And you don't know what the mix is yet because it's too early to tell. But you're going to get some mixture of weak growth, high inflation, and rising interest rates. The more the interest rates rise, the more it's the weak growth. The less the interest rate rise, the more it's the high inflation. And if the Fed takes the foot off the brake, you're going to, that, that inflation improvement's going to go away, and, and they're going you know, to favor growth. So you don't know what, which, which, how they're going to play it quite yet. So what we try to do in this kind of environment is, is maintain some balance, right? Diversification, obviously, Don't, not too heavily committed to any one direction. But also, even within the equity market, um, you know, structuring equity portfolios that have a, a, a cash flow and balance sheet base under them hmm. so that if the tightening is very aggressive, that there's a strong enough balance sheet to hold that up, to, to sustain their... Their, their position in the markets or uh, uh, sustain a positive cash flow. Uh, and I think that the companies that are, you know, have a lot of debt in relation to enterprise value or vulnerable profit margins, that sort of thing, um, you know, are the, are the type that are most vulnerable for that environment. So it sounds like an awful lot hinges on the Fed. Surprise, surprise. Jackson Hole coming up uh, next week, okay? A lot of people are going to pay attention to Jay Powell, what he has to say. If you remember last year at this event, he was talking about transitory still. That yeah. doesn't work so well this year. Right. So how much guidance can the Fed give us about exactly where they're heading on some of the questions that Bob just talked about? Well, it's hard to, hard to know. Uh, I do think uh, we're going to get a financial crisis somewhere 
somewhere pretty soon. Uh, it's always been part of the, of the tightening cycle. Uh, but uh, like you point out, David, you know, l l last year, it was really about transitory. He had five, <laughs> you, which you went through, five different things that would prove transitory. And I, I personally think the Fed is now on the other side of the wrong foot. <laughs> you know, now they're doing the entrenched. And uh, you know, a year ago, I thought bond yields could go to 5% and Fed funds go to 5%. And I'm not quite sure what's happened, but you know, money growth did slow dramatically. And commodity prices have come down dramatically. And now I'm seeing pricing power coming down. And so I think we've made a lot more progress on inflation than I expected. And, and that's why the market was going up until today. But that's, that's if inflation keeps coming down, uh, then the, the market is going to uh, appreciate that. So one thing I don't understand, Bob, we heard why Ed thinks uh, the Fed's job maybe has gotten a bit easier, actually, with some of the things that have happened. But financial conditions actually have not tightened. Actually, if anything, getting someone looser, that makes the Fed's job harder, does it well, not? In recent weeks. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the first half, the first half of the year, the, uh, literally the first quarter, the f markets were doing the Fed's job entirely. Yeah. And then the Fed joined in, and once the Fed joined in and the markets saw some, you know, positive signs of inflation, you know, they actually pulled back. And so bond yields came back down, equity yields, you know, came back down, um, and so... You know, that, as you said, about half of the tightening that the markets were applying has been retracted. Mm -hmm. if, if yields had stayed where they were, uh, it would be that much less that the Fed needs to do. But the fact that the yields have actually dropped some and can kind of given back some of the work that they were doing, it's that much more that the Fed needs to do. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, it's, and to, Ed referred to last, the, you know, you, you, you raised it and then, you know, we talk about last year's Jackson Hole speech, yeah. but um, they were clearly wrong about transitory inflation. If, if you actually look at the indicators that they follow, and they tend to be lagging indicators, um, I haven't heard yet an explanation about how they think inflation, why they think there is an inflation, why they think that that was wrong. And I think that that causes some, caused you to question the, the, how well this, this process is going to be managed. It's going to be very tricky. Well, and that's a really powerful point, I think. Does the Fed need to explain to us what went wrong and why they're not going to do a mistake again for us to really believe them this time? Well, it would be helpful. <laughs> but, uh, you know, from my vantage point, as you can see, uh, what they missed was that fiscal stimulus quantitative easing led to a 30% increase in the money supply, and that did it. And if you look back at that uh, Jackson Hole, they completely missed that. Now money growth is plunging and commodity prices are coming down, all sorts of signs and early signs. And so the job's not over by any means. Do you agree with Ed that in all likelihood we'll have some sort of financial crisis, that that's what happening, happens in serious tightening cycles? Uh, odds are pretty good, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we haven't had enough tightening yet to really have that. But um, odds are good, yeah. I mean, we haven't had the downturn yet. If there's going to be a downturn, it hasn't happened yet. It's going to be hard to bring inflation down. How, how are you going to bring nominal spending down from 10% to 5% without a significant contraction in credit? You need to slow credit growth by about half. Money growth is slowed, but you need to slow credit growth in half, but it's still rising. 
you're going to have to you're going to have to hold interest rates up enough, and that's when thing that's when bad things happen. I have to tell you, this is not a bad thing. It's a real treat to have the two of you here on Wall Street. We really thank you so much. That is Ed Hyman of Evercore and Bob Prince of Bridgewater. Coming up, you know what Warren Buffett says about the tide going out. Well, some of those who may be caught are those so-called zombie companies who've loaded up on debt when it was cheap. We talk about the risks and possible opportunities with Sonia Gibbs of the Institute for International Finance. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. It was nice while it lasted. All that support from the Fed, from zero interest rates. We continue to expect that it will be appropriate to maintain the current zero to one quarter percent target range for the federal funds rate. To pumping money into the economy more directly. We are deploying these lending powers to an unprecedented extent, enabled in large part by the financial backing from the Congress and the Treasury. We will continue to use these powers forcefully, proactively, and aggressively until we're confident that we are solidly on the road to recovery. All of which allowed companies to borrow as much as they wanted, which was worrying to Russ Kostrich of BlackRock as much as four years ago. The 800-pound gorilla, which eventually we're all going to have to question, is whether or not this buildup in corporate leverage, which we've seen over the past three or four years, is that sustainable? But now those happy days are over, as the Fed has reversed course and says, it will keep raising rates until the inflation dragon is slain. The idea that we are going to start cutting rates early next year when inflation is very likely going to be well, well, well in excess of our target, I just think it's not realistic. Where does that leave all those companies who've borrowed so much? Well, at least some of them are so-called zombies. No, not those zombies. Companies that don't generate enough cash to pay their debt. And that leads economists like Nouriel Roubini to say we're going to see some of them fail, which may just be what we needed to get to the other side. There were tons of firms that were highly leveraged, didn't have much profit, they were zombie, they would have gone bust, but during COVID, we bailed out everybody. Zero rate, negative rates, quantitative easing, credit easing. Now that we have to tighten as inflation is higher, the zombies are going to collapse. And to take us through this strange and exotic world of zombie companies, we welcome now Sonia Gibbs. She's Managing Director and Head of Sustainable Finance at the Institute of International Finance. So, Sonia, thank you so much for joining us on Wall Street Week. Let me start with those basic of questions. What exactly is a zombie company and how many of them are there out there? First of all, to take a step back, what you need to think about is that over the past 10 or 15 years, global debt levels have skyrocketed. We've had very low interest rates. And for example, non-financial corporate debt around the world is now close to 100% of GDP. And that's more than double what it was a decade ago. So that's a very worrying backdrop. And so what we mean by zombie companies is a company that essentially has to borrow to keep going. They are highly leveraged, they're not growing very fast, their revenues are not up to par. And at the moment, they face a very difficult situation. You've got higher input costs, so your commodity prices are higher, wages are rising. At the same time, you don't earn enough revenue to cover all of these higher costs and your debt service. So if you have a ratio of revenues to interest costs that's 
one or less, if you can barely cover your debt service costs, we call you a zombie company. And it's a very good name. It's very evocative. And for how many? I mean, it's difficult to calculate, right? Because for a lot of firms that, for example, aren't publicly listed, the information might be less available. They might be smaller, non-public companies. But the Federal Reserve estimates that between 5 and 10% of U.S. firms fall into this category. And it's also important to remember that this is not a static world. It's not once a zombie, always a zombie. Conditions change. And in fact, becoming a zombie company is a little bit cyclical in the sense that when times are good, maybe interest rates are low, growth is high, maybe you're not a zombie. But then, you know, bad things happen. Pandemics happen. Shocks happen. Interest rates go up. And a company that was formerly doing reasonably well might suddenly fall into the zombie category. So, so you mentioned the overall debt load, uh, which is true certainly in the United States, and not just in the United States, in part because interest rates were so low. There are some very, very successful healthy companies that loaded up on debt because it was so cheap. Uh, but and whenever we've talked about this risk in the last few years, they said, don't worry, as long as interest rates are low, we're fine. It looks like those days may be on their way out. We're going to have higher interest rates. So what kind of pressures does that put on these zombie companies? Well, I think it's a, a good analogy, right? It's all fine until it's not. And so you've had a, a kind of a confluence of factors that have hit pretty much at the same time. You had a pandemic which hit growth. You had a commodity price shock. You have rising inflation. You have higher interest rates. And you also have firms whose, whose business models, for example, have been entirely changed by the pandemic. I mean, amongst the list of zombie companies, you might find a company like WeWork, you know, a company that has been very successful, but at the same time, the pandemic has changed a lot of things for that, for that company. Carnival Cruise Lines is another good example of a type of company who's now in the zombie category, or some of the meme stocks, you know, AMC or GameStop. So these are really household names. Sonia, thank you so much for that uh, tour of the exotic world of zombie companies. That's Sonia Gibbs. She is from the Institute of International Finance. Pleasure to be here. Coming up, we wrap up our week with special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. 
At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David West, and we're going to wrap up the week once again with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. Larry, thanks so much for being back with us. So let's start with those Fed minutes that everybody was waiting for eagerly, uh, and they came out. The markets didn't know quite what to do with them. What did you make out of those minutes? They confirmed what I suspected, which was that the Fed doesn't know where it is, that the world is very ambiguous at this point, and minutes of a meeting are a very poor way to convey a collective uh, message. Look, the Fed has a fundamental problem about which it is not yet willing to be realistic. And that is that it is exceedingly unlikely that inflation can be brought down to target levels without a substantial increase in unemployment. They want to be very concerned about unemployment and about inflation. And the reality is that it's probably not so realistic to think that they're going to get inflation all the way down without getting unemployment uh, up. And they don't want to acknowledge that. And that forces a certain confusion uh, into all of their uh, statements. I can sympathize and understand why they don't want to uh, acknowledge that. Part of the problem is they've taken on an excessive obligation uh, to uh, communicate. So I think they're in a, a very, very difficult situation. I don't know to what extent they're going to choose to take the pain that is ahead on the stag side and to what extent they're going to choose to take it on the inflation uh, side. That remains uh, to be seen. 
I suspect in some ultimate sense, they don't really know uh, either which way it's going to go. It's got to worry them that uh, financial conditions are now materially looser than they were when the Fed last met. And when in the middle of a tightening cycle, financial conditions are substantially loosening, that has to make uh, a central bank uh, nervous. David, there's one other aspect of the situation that I think is very important and under-recognized. And that is because everybody focuses, and focuses rightly, on the geopolitics, what's happening with Russia and Ukraine, what's happening with droughts, all of it. They don't really fully internalize that oil prices and wheat prices have both come down substantially and are predicted to come down substantially in the future. That's what's driving the relatively limited inflation expectations. And those who were quick to focus on concepts of core inflation when headline inflation was higher than core inflation can't stop doing that when headline inflation is lower than uh, core uh, inflation. And I don't see that we're really making any great progress with respect to core inflation. One of the things the Fed emphasized in the minutes, uh, besides really being concerned about inflation expectations, on the other side of that was a softening housing market, something you referred to last week on this program. Give us your take of the housing market. Some people say we're in a housing recession right now. So I think you have to distinguish um, movers from stayers, or to put it differently, you have to uh, look at, you have to think about what the right way to look at rents is. Here's what's true. What's true is that last year, people who were signing new leases or buying new homes were paying 15 or 20% more than they had a year ago. Nothing like that fed into uh, the consumer price index or the Fed's preferred uh, measure, the PCE uh, index. All that fed through was the small fraction of people who saw their rents change and a constant rent for everybody else. What that means is that down the road, like now, you're seeing inflation not because new leases are going up so fast, although they still are going up at a reasonable rate, but just because the people whose leases are coming up are seeing substantial increases. And so we're going to see significant housing price inflation in the measures of inflation that are used probably for another six to nine months. That's a different thing than what builders are responding to. Builders aren't responding to that. Builders are responding to what they think the price of houses will be a year from now, and that come down, and so we're seeing a slowing in uh, building, and that's what happens when uh, interest rates uh, go, when interest rates go up. In some ways, it makes sense. If we're going to have a decline in economic activity, it's better to have a decline in something where we've already got a huge stock of it, and it's only the new flow that's being affected, than 
in, uh, the, in something that we need to consume on a continuous basis and that doesn't uh, have uh, any duration uh, to it. Larry, when you talk about softness and slowing, we certainly saw that in numbers coming out of China at the beginning of this week. Uh, and I wonder what you make of the Chinese problems, as we know there are three or four of them that are interlocked there. But on the other hand, is it possible that will give a little, at least a little relief to the Fed here on slowing inflation? I think it probably will. Uh, it, it goes back to the issue we discussed a few minutes ago, uh, David, uh, about oil prices and uh, grain prices. The, main impact of Chinese slowing is likely to be on commodity prices. And there's a question as to how much weight those should be given as we think about our inflation rate uh, in uh, this country. But it probably is a positive on inflation. I think the larger questions involve how we see China in the future and how China will be responding to these economic uh, difficulties. These, as I've been saying now for some time, are looking like increasingly profound events uh, in China. It was taken as almost axiomatic six months or a year ago that at some point the Chinese economy would surpass the American economy in terms of total GDP at market exchange rates. That's now much less clear than it previously was. And I think you're seeing all kinds of challenges for China. There's the huge financial overhang. There's the where the growth is going to come from. There's the uh, growing Communist Party involvement in a wider range of enterprises. There's the demographic challenge. Uh, I have been saying for some time that I think people are going to look back at some of the economic forecasts about China in 2020 in the same way they looked back at uh, economic forecasts for Russia that were made in 1960 or for Japan that were made in 1990. Okay, Larry, thank you so very much. That's Larry Summers of Harvard, our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week. Finally, one more thought. Getting old, it's one thing that we all have to do, and none of us wants to think about it. And it sometimes seems like some of the oldest among us may be the deepest in denial. Whether it's rock musicians like Mick Jagger still performing live on stage at the age of 79, or Sir Paul McCartney, who's still going strong way past that age of 64 he once worried about. Or our political leaders in or nearing their 80s, like President Biden, and Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi, who snapped back at a reporter 10 years ago when asked a question. Some of your colleagues privately say that your decision to stay on prohibits the party from having a younger leadership and will be hurt and hurts the party in the long term. It's your response. <laughs> and who can forget President Ronald Reagan, who in 1984 provoked the age-old, or should I say old age, question after stumbling through his previous debate with Democratic challenger Walter Mondale, only to come back with this zinger. I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. <laughs> The world of business and finance isn't entirely immune from this. 
led by Warren Buffett, who at 91 shows no signs of stepping down and told our own David Rubenstein his goal is to keep going. Think well, I'd like it. to be the oldest man that ever lived, actually. <laughs> and who knows, maybe we don't really just get older, we get better. For those of us hoping that that may just be true, we now have a concrete, provable example coming from the world of golf, where a journeyman tour professional who'd struggled for years suddenly became a star, simply by turning 50, pushing him into the older player PGA Tour Champions League. To be sure, Stephen Alker from New Zealand happened to be at the very top of his game when his birthday came around. But according to the Wall Street Journal, adding that extra year has led him to make in one year $3.5 million, which is more than he'd made in all the rest of his career put together. And if he keeps sinking extra long putts like he did to win the Boeing Classic, that's the way to get it done. He may just be getting started. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David West, and this is Bloomberg. See you next week. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.